in this chapter last Sunday evening, and we're coming back to it again uh, this evening. Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to begin reading in verse 1 and read down to verse 9 of this chapter. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul wrote, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Where in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us, through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious and eternal word. Well, as I said this evening, I'd like to bring you back to Ephesians chapter 2, but tonight I want to focus on just two words at the heart of our reading tonight in verse 4. You'll find them indeed throughout the scriptures, and these are the words, but God. You know, it would pay us and pay you to go through your Bible sometime and read every passage which contains the words, but God. When Joseph's brothers in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis feared revenge and reprisal after selling Joseph into Egyptian slavery, he replied, it was not you that sent me hither, but God. That's a statement of providence. Joseph was acknowledging that God is in control of every aspect of our lives. When his father Jacob was on his deathbed, those words brought reassurance and hope to his children. He said, Behold, I die, but God shall be with you and bring you again into the land of your fathers. Later, when the psalmist thought about the eternal destiny of lost humanity, he wrote, Like sheep they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them, and the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. And their beauty shall consume in the grave from their dwelling. And then he added, But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. Again, from the book of Psalms, when you know you and I think about the world around us and all that's going on, sometimes we wonder who's really in charge of things. We read this admonition. For promotion cometh neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is the judge. He putteth down one and setteth up another. Luke, writing in the book of Acts, speaking of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, said this, 
And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead. Paul, writing of Christian service in 1 Corinthians and chapter 1 said this, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But by far, the greatest of the but God statements of Scripture is the one that is found here in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4. Without these two little words, I would ask my brothers and sisters in Christ tonight, where would we be? I tell you where we would be. We would be trapped and ensnared in our sins. As Ephesians 2 puts it, we would still be in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh, and of the mind, and condemned by nature as the children of wrath. In other words, we'd be lost and undone. We would be crying out with the prophet of old, Woe is me, for I am undone. If it was not for those two little words, but God, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, for even when we were dead in sins, he hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved. But God. These two words in the first instance speak to us of God's attribute of mercy and of the richness of his mercy. Know what it says? But God who is rich in mercy. Now I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that Paul added the words in mercy, on the end of that statement. He didn't just say, but God who is rich. Well, in the first place, if he had said that, that would be stating the obvious, would it not? He's the creator and the, and the sustainer and the owner of all. We simply cannot conceive in material terms the wealth of God, just how rich God is to such a degree that every planet and every star is his making. The psalmist says in Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. But not just the earth, the heavens also, Deuteronomy 10, 14, behold the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God, the earth also with all that therein is. He owns it all. There is nothing that is not his. To say that he is rich, well, that would be something of an understatement. Yet if Paul were to simply have written, but God who is rich, well, what good is that to me? And what good is that to you? How does that statement help you? How does that statement help me? So God is rich. 
We look around this planet tonight and there are people who are known for their wealth and their affluence. We think of the founder of the Amazon company, Jeff Bezos, who's the wealthiest man in the world tonight. I have no idea how much he owns and what he's worth, but I'm told he's the richest man on planet Earth tonight. And yet with all, what difference does that make to my life? What difference does it make to your life? Elon Musk is an extremely wealthy man, so much so that he can send rockets into space. But what difference does that make to me? And what difference does it make to you? The computer uh, giant Bill Gates is a very wealthy man. He's a man who plummets a great deal of uh, money into all kinds of causes. Uh, But in terms of me, he makes no difference whatsoever. He's done nothing for me personally. You know, Richard Branson in our own country is an extraordinarily wealthy businessman and entrepreneur. We could say Richard Branson is rich. And if we stop there, we'd say, well, so what? What good is that to me? How does that help me? If Paul simply says, but God who is rich, how does that reach out to me? Sitting where I am tonight in this church, in this meeting hall. How does this reach to my life? How does it say anything to my total depravity? What does it say about me and my separation by nature from God? What does it say about my sin? What in the world will that statement do for me if it simply says, but God who is rich? But it doesn't just say, but God who is rich. Rather, he writes, but God who is rich in mercy. Now, I want you to get that tonight. We're serving a merciful God. We're declaring a merciful Savior tonight. But God who is rich in mercy. Thank God for that statement. You see, here is the God of the Bible. And as I understand and as I read the word of God, I find that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That God isn't interested in condemnation. He's interested in salvation. He's not interested in sending men to hell. He's far more interested in winning men for heaven. His desire is not to condemn you, nor to judge you, but in Instead, he reaches out to you in mercy tonight and we say your life would be in ruins and my life would be in ruins if it were not for God who is rich in mercy. Mercy. Now there is one of the great words of the gospel. Think about that word tonight. What is mercy? Someone grants you mercy. In what way are they helping you? How are they touching your life? Well, in simple terms, mercy is compassion. It's a forgiveness that is shown towards someone whom it is within your power to punish or to harm. In other words, you have the ability to hurt someone, but you choose not to hurt them. You have the right to harm them or to punish them in some way, and you choose not to harm them or to punish them in that way. When I was a schoolboy, I had a a teacher, Miss Seaton. She was a German teacher. It's funny how you always remember names of teachers, isn't it? Miss Seaton was a German teacher. Not that she was German. She was from Northern Ireland, but she taught German. And I hated German. I hated German from the very first day of that class. 
I hated German. And I hated having to learn German. You know, I had grown up, uh, as many in my generation did, with stories of the Second World War. To me, the Germans should have been learning English. That's the way I saw it. We had won the war. They should learn English. Of course, I was such a knucklehead, I didn't realize that most of them can't speak English. But nevertheless, I saw no reason why I should have to learn German. And so I would act up in her class. Every time she would come in, I would make fun, play around, mess about, get in trouble. And me and Miss Seaton just didn't get along. She didn't like me, probably quite understandably, and I didn't like her. And so each time I would come into her class, eventually I'd get just fed up with it, and uh, I'd say something silly, I'd do something silly, and she'd say, right, Moore, she said, you go into Mr. Bell." Mr. Bell was in the French class across the other side of the, the porter cabins in which we were learning. There was a little, a little hallway, and then you stepped into the French class. So I'd go across to that French class, and I'd knock the door, and Mr. Bell would look up, and he knew me from French, and he would say to me, come in, Moore. And he'd say, what is it? And I'd say, sir, Miss Seaton has sent me in to see you. And he says, what did you do? And I tell him what I did. I did a seek hail or something. And, and so uh, I say, well, I made a seek hail or I, you know, I called her Hitler or something. And whatever it was, something stupid, ridiculously silly, childish, he would then cane me once on each hand. Now, this was regular as clockwork. I mean, literally, it got to the point where Mr. Bell didn't even have to look up. I would knock the door. He'd be on his desk. He wouldn't even look up. He'd say, come in, Moore. I would come in, stand by his desk, and he'd say, what do you do today? I'd tell him what I did. I was very honest about what I did. He would cane me in both hands, and I would go back to the German class. And that was that. But one day I came to this uh, door of the, of the French class, and I knocked the door, and Mr. Bell invited me in. I came in, and he, said, and he, and he just looked exasperated. <laughs> he just looked like he was fed up seeing me, you know. And he, and he, just, he just looked at me and says, what have you done today? And I said, well, I've done this and that and whatever it was. And he just said, he said, just go back to your class and do this. <laughs> so I went back across to the German class and the teacher opened the door and I went and she put me to my seat. But I wasn't actually punished. You see, that day, Mr. Bell showed me mercy. Now, I didn't deserve mercy. I deserved the cane. I didn't deserve to be let off that day, but he, probably motivated by weariness or by convenience or whatever uh, was his reason, he showed me that day mercy. But God doesn't show you mercy because he's fed up with your sin. He doesn't show you mercy because you've worn him out. He shows you mercy because he loves you. That's what this verse goes on to say. Verse 4. But God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. Here we see not just the greatness of God's mercy, but we see the greatness of God's love. But God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. 
And notice how Paul emphasizes the greatness of God's love with the words that follow. He says in verse 5, even when. I want you to notice those words. But God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins. You know, it's easy to love the lovable. It's easy to love, you know, a little puppy dog. It's easy to love a little fluffy kitten. It's easy to love a little pet. It's easy to love your dearest friend. It's easy to love your children for the most part. It's easy to love. Even the Lord Jesus recognized that it's easy to love those who love you. Look at Matthew chapter 5 with me tonight. Matthew chapter 5, we come to his famous sermon on the mount. And in that sermon he points out how the Pharisees love one another. But that their love does not extend to those outside of their religious circle. And in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43. He says you have heard that it hath been said. Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Now the Bible never said that. That was a Pharisaical teaching. But I say unto you love your enemies Bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his sun to rise on the evil and the sinful and on the good, and sends rain on the just, the saved, and on the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same. The Pharisee took care of his own. But God loved us when we were not his own. He loved us when we were part of Satan's cabal. He loved us when we were in the devil's family. He loved us when we were the very enemies of God. That's the remarkable thing about us tonight. That's the remarkable thing about you tonight. If you're here and you're not a Christian, from God's perspective, there's nothing about us that is winsome. There's nothing attractive about us. There's nothing appealing about us. There's nothing noble that we have to offer. Nothing of merit. Nothing to bring them. We have nothing. And yet he loved us. And loves us still. Now how is that love expressed? Well, next month is Valentine's Day, isn't it? I thought I'd flag that up, guys, in case you got into trouble next month. If you follow that thing. But a lot of young men are going to go out and they're going to want to express love to the girl of their life. They're going to want to go out and they're going to buy flowers. The florists can't wait. They're rubbing their hands. Next month is Christmas all over again. So some men will go out and they'll express love by means of flowers. Cadbury's and Nestle are really excited. Some will express their love by means of chocolates. Others will go out and, spend their, uh, and share their love by means of cards. Is that how God showed his love to us? By flowers, by chocolates, by cards, by words that were sentimental? Not at all. He expressed his love toward us by means of a cross, by self-sacrifice, by the surrender of himself to the most torturous death in all of human history. 
Romans 5 and 8 says, but God commandeth. Or if you like, in modern terms, God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, far too many people get this idea that God's love is rooted in our finite grasp of the concept of love. You see, we see love primarily as an emotional response. We talk about love as a feeling. But God's word speaks about love as an action. It's a, it's a verb. It's a doing word. It's not just something that waves over me and waves away again. I don't fall in love and fall out of love. God didn't fall in love with us. Nor indeed will he fall out of love with us. But he showed his love toward us. For his love isn't necessarily rooted in, the, in our understanding of an emotion. You know, did God love, love us? Did he feel love for us? That's the question I ask you tonight. Well, I think that he did. But what if he didn't? What if he didn't feel love for us? Suppose that Christ, just before he goes to the cross goes into the garden of Gethsemane and he thinks to himself, you know what, I don't feel anything toward these people. I hate the way they're behaving. I hate how they talk to one another. I hate how they treat one another. I don't really like what my creation has become and the things that they do before God. And, and, and I, you know what, I don't feel like doing this. Do you think if his feelings were the currency of his actions that still he would have went to the cross. But the truth is that he loved us. That he showed us his love. And because of his love for us, the Lord Jesus resisted and fought back against his own feelings. And even though he prayed three times to have the cup of God's judgment removed from him on the occasion of his crucifixion, he was far more interested in doing the will of the Father than, than in, in, in what he felt doing. In other words, he showed his love by means of an action. Jesus displayed his love by willingly going to the cross for us, dying for sinners and for those who were still and are still his enemies, those who are counted among the most desperately wicked. When we were enemies, writes Paul, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Now that's the mark of great love. Great love is not laying your life down for your friends alone. Great love is laying down your life for your enemies as well. Great love is not caring about those who just care about you. Great love is caring about those who couldn't care less about you. Great love is caring for those who use your name as a swear word. Great love is caring about those who put their fingers in their ears when the gospel is heard because they don't want to hear the message of Christ. Great love is shown by a God in heaven who came to earth. And even when we were dead in sins, even then, he showed his great love toward us in that Christ died for us. Now you might say, well, I don't deserve that. Guess what? You're right. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. And so this, but God, 
speaks to us not just of the riches of his mercy and the greatness of his love, but the marvel of his grace. It says, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, and then in brackets, by grace you are saved. Grace is the opposite of mercy. Mercy occurs when someone refuses to give you something you actually deserve, like my school teacher. Whereas grace provides a favor for us that we do not deserve. It shows us a kindness that we definitely do not merit. The word means kindness. It means favor. It means goodwill. It means generosity. One of my favorite places to visit in these islands, and I've been there several times, is Hampton Court Palace in London, just out in the west of London. And it was the uh, palace of uh, King Henry VIII that was initially built by Cardinal Wolsey. And and, uh, Henry VIII rather envied this palace, and in due time uh, he uh, basically received it from Wolsey in return for his life. But nevertheless... If you go and visit Hampton Court Palace, you know, it's a fascinating place. You have this uh, this Tudor uh, building to begin with, a Renaissance building, and then an extension that Henry VIII built, a big banqueting hall that he built. Uh, and there's a courtyard. So one side you have this part that Cardinal Wolsey built, and then you have another part that Henry VIII built. And then across the way, you have a set of apartments that were built by King William III. Uh, and he, he dwelt and lived in Hampton Court Palace. He chose that palace uh, to... To live in, and then just closing in the courtyard is another set of apartments that was built by King George III in the 18th and 19th century. But uh, he decided in the end, King George III decided in the end that he wasn't going to live there. And so they had to figure out what they were going to do with this palace, this royal palace with thousands of rooms. Uh, you know, what were they going to be able to do with it? And what they did under King George was that they divided it up into what's known as grace and favor apartments. They, they, they gave rooms in this palace uh, to those who were given grace and favor by the king and uh, those who had done great service to the crown, uh, those who had served the country in some way uh, and uh, would, would be rewarded, uh, would indeed be, would be given this grace and favor apartment. In fact, to this very day, if you go to Hampton Court Palace and you visit it on your holidays sometime, if you're ever in London, go visit it, uh, you'll find that there's still a, a section of that palace in which there are people who live there uh, by grace and favor of Her Majesty the Queen. They don't pay a penny to live there. Uh, They're just living there at the expense of the monarch. Now it's unlikely that you and I will ever be offered the opportunity to live in an apartment like that. It's reserved for minor royals. It's reserved for people who are esteemed courtiers, servants of the crown. Uh, But God in his grace has provided in his own grace uh, sorry, he has provided his own grace and favor apartments for us. He's offered you a place in his heaven, a place in his palace, a room in his house. 
He's saying, look, I, I love you. I'm willing to show mercy towards you. I'm, I'm, willing to, I'm willing to hold back my wrath because I've put it upon Christ. I'm willing to extend my grace to you. And I'm willing to open my door to you. And I'm willing to allow you to come in and be part of my heaven and to dwell under my grace and favor in my kingdom. The Bible says, by grace you are saved. You see that little phrase there in verse 5? By grace you're saved. It's very important you get a hold on that. You see, it's not by means of, and I want you to listen carefully tonight. It's not by means of a sinner's prayer that you're saved. You say, well, what do you mean, pastor? You know, there are some people, and uh, they, they, are, they encounter a Christian somewhere along the line, a well-meaning Christian, who tells them that all they've got to do to be saved is to say this prayer. And, and, and so they'll say, just repeat after me. And they'll have this individual repeat a prayer. And they'll say at the close of that prayer, there you are. You're, you're saved. You're born again. Well, my friends, listen. You're not born again by repeating prayers. I could go up the road here up railway street to the railway bar and stand outside and wait for the first drunk that topples across the threshold out into the street. I could say to him, here's 10 quid or here's 20 pounds. Why don't you say this prayer? If you'll just say this prayer, I'll give you 10 pounds. I'll give you 20 pounds. And you'd go back into that pub and carry on drinking. And you know, he might well say, well, show me what I've got to say. And I might well repeat the words to him. And he might repeat the words to me. And then he goes back into the bar. But is he saved? Of course he's not saved. Nobody ever got saved by repeating a prayer. The Bible doesn't say repeat a prayer and you'll be saved. It says believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. So it's not by saying a prayer that you're saved. It's not, it's not because we repent with bitter tears uh, either to the point where you, know, you think, well, oh, I must really be saved because I really repented. Judas cried bitter tears. But he wasn't saved. And it's not salvation, not because you've turned over a, a new leaf. Some people get this idea, well, I'll change my ways. I'll be a new improved me. Did you ever notice when you go to the shop and they tell you that your favorite product is new and improved? You take it home and taste it, it's usually not improved. Did you ever notice that? They've usually messed with it. Our daughter, when she was a teenager, was a connoisseur of Campbell's soups. She loved Campbell's scotch broth soup. You could have fed her that all day long. You could have just put it on her drip and left her there. She happily drank that soup all day long. Well, they brought her a new and improved can of Campbell's scotch broth soup. So we brought her home and we fed it to our daughter. And she was aghast. Because far from being improved, she felt that, the, that the, the taste just wasn't right. It wasn't the same soup at all. And so I said to her, you know, kind of jokingly, why don't you write them a letter of complaint? And she did. And you know what happened? They went back to the old recipe. They'd had a number of people who had written to them complaining about the new and improved version. And they sent her six cans of Campbell's soup in the post. She was very delighted. <laughs> 
But my friends, if you think that you can have a new and improved you and that's going to make things better and, and that God is going to be more pleased with you and he's going to accept you, he's going to say, you know what, I like that new model better than the old model, you're very much mistaken. Salvation is not about improving men. Salvation is about resurrecting men. You see, the Bible says here that we are dead in trespass and sins, but God is willing to quicken us, to bring us to life, to breathe life into us and that is we exercise faith in the grace that is extended to us through Jesus Christ our Lord it's because we have been granted by an act of God's supreme kindness new life that we've been quickened brought to life That God has brought to life that which is dead. That's what makes a person saved. So that Paul says, even when we were dead in sins, he hath quickened us together in Christ. By grace are ye saved. You see, here's the problem. Left to ourselves, we're finished. Left to ourselves, we're done. We're washed up. We're of no use to God. We're doomed and we're damned. But God. There's those words. They're critical words. But God who is rich in mercy. For his great love wherewith he loved us. Even when we were dead in sins. Hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved. But God. You see when I was done. When I was washed up. When I was acknowledging my sin. When I admitted that I was totally depraved. That I had nothing to offer God. That I was without hope and without Christ in this present world. Then I read. But God. God stepped in. And by means of the cross, he showed me his love and his grace. He showed me that he was willing, and not just willing, but able to save me if I would but put my trust in Jesus Christ. And when we do that, notice what happens. Verse 6, he raises us up together. He brought the dead to life. He brings the dead to life. Grace triumphs over guilt. Grace triumphs over shame. Grace triumphs over sin. And then he made us to sit together in heavenly places. We're seated at his table. You know that idea there is that we're actually in God's mind and in God's, from God's perspective, we're actually seated already in heaven. If you're saved tonight, let me tell you something. As God sees it, you're already there. You've already got your feet under the table. When I was a young fella, out dating, you know, you go out dating with a girl and your mother would say, have you got your feet under the table? I used to think to myself, what does she mean have I got my feet? Why would I put my feet under the table? But what she meant was, have you been accepted into the home? Are you being treated as one of the family? Has the girl's parents received you? Have they welcomed you in? And that's what God does for us tonight by grace. He welcomes us in. He puts our feet under the table. He seats us in heavenly places. He grants us a grace and favor apartment. He says, I've opened a room for you. Having trusted Christ, I've opened a space for you. Come on in, you're welcome. 
quickened, raised, seated. That's where you could be tonight. No longer sitting in sin and shame and guilt, but quickened, brought alive, and raised, and seated. All of those terms indicate in the Greek language that these things are already done. I don't wait. Listen, I want you to understand something tonight. Christians are not waiting with bated breath to see if God will receive us. You know, I'm not anticipating when I die that I'm going to be going into heaven or going toward heaven with my fingers crossed hoping that God is going to let me in. That's not it at all. I already have salvation. I'm already quickened. I'm already raised. I'm already seated. As far as he's concerned, I'm already there. I'm not going to, you know, I, I, it's not that I, I have to endure to the end to be saved. I'm saved already. It's why I believe personally in eternal security. You know, uh, I don't subscribe to the idea that we can somehow lose our salvation. You never earn it to begin with. You know, you pay nothing for God's love. You gave nothing for uh, his son. You gave nothing for his mercy. You gave nothing for his grace. Nothing for our eternal rest. Why in the world do you think then that having been saved that you'd have to somehow work to keep yourself saved? It's the gift of God. That's what the passage teaches. This is God's amazing grace towards sinners. Now I want you to listen carefully to what I'm going to say to you tonight. Grace is everything for nothing to those who don't deserve anything. Grace is everything for nothing to those who don't deserve anything. What trouble we were in. What trouble we are in if we're yet not saved. What trouble you may be in tonight. But God. But God who is rich in mercy. But God who is rich in in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. But God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, even then when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace are ye saved. As we close out this evening, I want to give you a picture of what this grace means. And I want to do this by reading to you an excerpt from a book by a man called Timothy Paul Jones. He writes a story about his adopted daughter. And he said this, I never dreamed that taking a child to Disney World could be so difficult or that such a trip could teach me so much about God's outrageous grace. Our middle daughter had been previously adopted by another family. I'm sure this couple had the best of intentions, but they never quite integrated the adopted child into their family of biological children. After a couple of rough years, they dissolved the adoption And we ended up welcoming an eight-year-old girl into our home. For one reason or another, when our daughter's previous family vacationed at Disney World, they took their biological children with them. But they left their adopted daughter with a family friend, 
Usually, at least in the child's mind, this happened because she did something wrong that precluded her presence on the trip. And so by the time we adopted our daughter, she had seen many pictures of Disney World and she had heard about the rides and the characters and the parades. But when it came to passing through the gates of the Magic Kingdom, she had always been the one left on the outside. Once I found out about this history, I made plans to take her to Disney World the next time a speaking engagement took our family to the southeastern United States. I thought I had mastered the Disney World drill. I knew from previous experiences that the prospect of seeing cast members in freakishly oversized mice and duck costumes somehow turns children into squirming bundles of emotional instability. What I didn't expect was the prospect of visiting this stream world would produce a stream of downright devilish behavior in our newest daughter. In the month leading up to our trip to the Magic Kingdom, she stole food when a simple request would have gained her a snack. She lied when it would have been easier to tell the truth. She whispered insults that were carefully crafted to hurt her older sister as deeply as possible and as the days on the calendar moved closer to the trip, her mutinies multiplied. A couple of days before our family headed to Florida, I pulled our daughter into my lap to talk through her latest escapade. I know what you're going to do, she said flatly. You're not going to take me to Disney World, are you? The thought hadn't actually crossed my mind, but her downward spiral suddenly started to make some sense. She knew she couldn't earn her way into the magic kingdom. She had tried and failed that test several times before. So she was living in a way that placed her as far as possible from the most magical place on earth. In retrospect, I'm embarrassed to admit that in that moment I was tempted to turn her fear to my own advantage. The easiest response would have been, if you don't start behaving better, you're right, we won't take you. But by God's grace, I didn't. Instead, I asked her, is this trip something we're doing as a family? She nodded, brown eyes wide and tear-rimmed. Are you part of this family? She nodded again. Then you're going with us. Sure, there may be some consequences to help you remember what's right and what's wrong, but you're part of the family and we're not leaving you behind. I'd like to say that her behaviors grew better after that moment. They didn't. Her choices pretty much spiraled out of control at every hotel and rest stop all the way to Lake Buena Vista. Still, we headed to Disney World on the day we had promised and it was a typical Disney day. Overpriced tickets, overpriced meals and lots of lines mingled with just enough manufactured magic to consider maybe going again someday. In our hotel room that evening, a very different child emerged. She was exhausted, pensive, and a little weepy at times. But her month-long facade of rebellion had faded. When bedtime rolled around, I prayed with her, held her, and asked, So how was your first day at Disney World? She closed her eyes snuggled down into her stuffed unicorn. And after a few moments, she opened her eyes ever so slightly. Daddy, she said, I finally got to go to Disney World. 
But it wasn't because I was good. It was because I'm yours. It wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. That's the message of outrageous grace. God's grace isn't a favor you can achieve by being good. It's a gift you receive by being God's. But God, mercy, love, grace. Have you discovered his mercy tonight? Have you experienced his love tonight? Have you felt the power of his grace this evening? Why not come to Jesus and allow those two words, but God, to prove their power in your life as you secure forgiveness and entry into heaven, not because you're good, but because you're his. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts.